Welcome one and all. Thank you so much for your time. This is going to be a corker of a podcast, uh, especially because the title is one of the best I've ever heard. Uh, Sam Shemi gave us life, death, and the bridges in between. Let me just add that this podcast is the Critical Care Commute, and we had such a fulsome discussion that we ran the risk of a Toronto commute rather than a Edmonton or Montreal-level commute. So we're very pleased to have divided this into two parts. We think it warrants it, and I think it'll be very clear to everyone why we have to have Sam back ASAP. Bono of U2 once said, the best thing about being a musician is you get to be in a band with the edge. One of the best things about being in intensive care is you get to have wonderful colleagues and friends across the country and across the world. And today's guest, Sam Shemi, is a professor of pediatrics, medical advisor to the Canadian Blood Service for internationally recognized work on uh, organ donation and the definition of death associated with that honorary appointments here there and everywhere and as i found out yesterday when i called him to prepare for this a hockey star because uh, he disappears every tuesday evening from his loving family to fire a puck around or two what could be more canadian sam thank you so much for your precious time thanks for joining us pleasure thanks for having me sam just let's dive into it life death and the bridges in between pourquoi as they might say in montreal you know being an intensive care doc you are always working on the edges of life death. And, um, you know, over time, you start to reflect on what that means. Before COVID, before we were popular, or at least in the public's eye, when you describe what you do, what is it that you tell people as an intensivist? What is it that you do? Fair enough. And I guess you're right. We do life, death, and that liminal state in between it. So 20 years, 30 years on the front lines of all of this, and as an academic too, what have you learned and what should people joining the profession know? Yeah, l let, me, let me step back a little bit. Um, when I describe what I do to people who understand basics of science in other disciplines, I tell them that I am an oxygen delivery doctor. And that's fundamentally what we do in critical care, is that we identify life-threatening conditions that are characterized by a compromise in oxygen delivery to organs, and oxygen delivery being everything we know, right? Cardiac output times oxygen content. And what we do is we identify a deficit in that, and we address it by doing what we do. We improve heart rate, stroke volume, contractility, deal with preload, manage afterload, and increase oxygen content and hemoglobin. And we do all that to deliver oxygen to cells for mitochondrial respiration and energy production. And that's fundamentally what we do. And we do that in so many different and wonderfully complicated and technologically advancing ways. And it started in the 60s with traditional cardiopulmonary resuscitation and mechanical ventilation, then evolved to all other forms of life-sustaining or life-supportive therapy. And that includes things like hemodynamic support, other forms of mechanical ventilation with different machines that are designed to push air in push oxygen in, other adjuncts to respiratory support like nitric oxide or oscillators. And then we advance to other things like hemodynamic support using intraaortic balloon pumps or ventricular assist devices or 
ECMO being a form of heart-lung bypass or support for pending or established heart and lung failure. And we do all those things in order to sustain oxygen delivery to cells, organs, in order to sustain life. And everything that we do in order to sustain life is on a presumption. There is a presumption that either there is a treatment that will reverse the underlying condition and allow that patient to manage their own oxygen delivery and or the uh, advent of time will allow that patient to recover to be able to do that themselves. And then the question that we all face in critical care, inevitably and frequently, is what if we deploy all these things that are intended to save life? What happens if neither time nor treatment reverses the underlying life-threatening situation and you have a patient on all these types of mechanical support and then you reflect on what you're going to do if neither time nor treatment And I would add a third treatment. It's either time, treatment, or transplantation to replace the failing organ as our suite of treatments that we offer patients. But if neither time, nor treatment, nor transplantation can reverse that condition, you're left with a person on various forms of aggressive, life-sustaining, life-supportive treatments, and then you're left with what to do next. And as we know, there are certain things, and I, I um, Peter, uh, Peter, you gave a talk to the McGill Group recently, and, and, you, and you said something like, um, two weeks in the ICU will save you one hour of, of discussion before you get there, right? And it's the recognition of, of when you cannot help that patient recover. And in certain conditions, it's a matter of they can't recover to a quality of life that is satisfactory for them or in the minds of their surrogates. But in other conditions, there is a final point in time in which there is no return. And the question that arises is, okay, if you've got all these treatments that can either support or replace lung function, heart function, kidney function, liver function, if you have all those treatments to support those things, then when is, what is the end game and what is the final point of no return and the only organ that we do we neither support nor can we replace is the brain and really people have differing views on what it means to be a human being but what is increasingly clear is that it is the presence or absence of brain function that delineates the line between what is life and what is death, given the advances in technologies that support or replace all other organ functions, except for the brain. If you reflect on how you manage brain injury, you don't replace brain function. You don't support brain function. All you do is prevent the way brain failure leads to your death, which is through an airway and mechanical ventilation that replaces air, uh, central nervous system airway control and sens- central nervous system drive to breathe. So reflecting on what we do every day and reflecting on the situations that we're faced with, the question is, what is the final point of no return? There are conditions in which you have residual brain function, not very good, bad neurological outcome, but there is still brainstem function or there is some form of awareness or wakefulness. But 
incompatible with a high quality life. And then there's a value decision made between practitioners and families around when to stop. And as you know, the most common event that precedes death in intensive care units in Canada and around the world in advanced care health system is a consensual decision with families to stop or limit life support in recognition of that irreversibility and that damage. But there is a more clear line in the sand, and that is when there is completely no brain function at all. That means the absence of consciousness, which means awareness, any form of awareness, sensory processing, vision, hearing, feeling, sensing, thinking, and loss of all wakefulness, meaning complete unresponsive coma and loss of brainstem reflexes and the drive to breathe. And that event, so-called brain death, which I would call arrest of brain function, if it is irreversible and permanent, meaning cannot recover, and there are no therapeutic options to reverse it, then that person is medically and legally dead. And then you get into the, well, what does dead mean? Why isn't dead clear? People think dead is like the color green. If you sit in any lakeside setting in Canada and you look at the trees, everybody will say, yeah, those trees are green, but there are many different shades of that green that you see. And in the same way, when people use the word death, they are talking about different things. And to be clear, we are not talking about death of cells. We are not talking about death of organs, and we are not talking about death of the organism. What we are talking about is death of the person as defined by the complete and permanent arrest of all brain function. You know, if, if you, you know, I really like to think that in the midst of our action oriented specialty in which we recognize life threatening states and we deploy all these interventions to sustain life again for time treatment or transplantation to reverse the underlying disease. It is inevitable for us to become philosophers of some sort, reflecting on what it means to be alive and dead, and reflecting on auction delivery as our primary purpose. And then you ask, is it auction delivery to every cell and every organ? Perhaps in some people's view, but in most people's view, it's all about auction delivery to sustain brain function, to allow for neurological function and recovery. And in the absence of that, that is the line that we now call death. Bob Trogue from Boston uses a very interesting characterization of brain death. He's one of those academic critics of our current death determination or definition practices. And he would characterize brain death as legally enforceable futility. Interesting viewpoint. Legally enforceable futility. I don't have a problem with that. If you believe that death means death of all cells, if that's what you insist on. But if you believe that it's death of a person, which means that the complete and permanent arrest of brain function means the person is dead despite being on mechanical ventilator that interrupts the way brain failure will kill you by replacing breathing, and by replacing breathing, you prevent the heart stopping, those are, again, our unintended consequences of trying to save life. And when the brain completely stops working, that's the end of the person. Holy smokes, that was magnificent, Sam. Thank you. We started with sort of uh, physiology. We ended up with philosophy. We started with empiric science. We ended up with sort of existential spirituality. And I think you're absolutely right that it's the journey that every one of us goes on during this job and, and has to go on during this job. You know, they used to say, 
medicine was the most humane of the sciences and the most scientific of the humanities. And I think you've, you've grasped both of those incredibly important things. So if it's death of the person, if I can just be provocative, do we, once brain death has been declared, do we stop using words like person and patient and we, do we just refer to body or is that callous and uh, dismissive? Yeah, it's interesting because we have just uh, worked with the Canadian Critical Care Society, we meaning Canadian Blood Services, have just worked with the Canadian Critical Care Society and the Canadian Medical Association to really uh, achieve two things uh, through funding from Health Canada. And, and that, that has been to redefine all death as brain-based. So you get there because you've got a primary brain injury leading to arrest of brain function, or you get there because your heart stopped beating with leads to an arrest of circulation, and that arrest of circulation leads to an arrest of brain blood flow, and no blood flow means no function. And in that, we had colleagues who did a lot of work with families, and we had patient partners on this journey as well that helped advise us. And what is clear is that brain death is confusing to people, particularly in the public realm, but either, even with professionals who don't aren't involved with critical care or neurocritical care. So how do you help with that? How do you help people understand that a person who came in with brain injury, who now has a Glasgow coma score of three fixed dilated pupils, has apnea, has no brainstem reflexes, has no confounding or reversible condition, yet is lying in bed with their chest rising and their pulses palpable is dead. How do you uh, educate, uh, you know, your colleagues and in particular the family at the bedside about that? And, and the way to do that is really to understand the fundamental way in which the body functions, right? The brain doesn't work, no consciousness, no brainstem reflexes and apnea, but the brain is not going to recover. So as long as you replace it with breathing, your chest rises. As long as you get oxygen into the bloodstream, the heart will beat there's a pulse. How do you distinguish that? And how do you refer to that patient after the determination of a brain-based death has occurred? We don't call that person a patient anymore. We don't call that person anymore. We say there is somatic support, or in fact, the body is alive, but the brain is no longer working and will not recover. You know, we produced this educational video to, it's a 90-second public educational video to really talk about the mechanisms of death starting with brain failure leading to respiratory arrest or respiratory arrest leading to cardiac arrest and then the flip side cardiac arrest leading to brain arrest you know if i'm sitting here talking to you now and i have a ventricular fibrillation cardiac arrest and abrupt loss of circulation you're not going to know for 20 seconds there is a delay between when your blood flow to the brain stops versus when i will lose consciousness and so the relationship between brain lung heart and then back to brain we've elaborated on that to make sure that people understand the science the things that we need to make sure with families is that one they understand it is not a surprise when somebody comes in with any form of devastating brain injury anoxic brain injury after resuscitated cardiac arrest trauma cerebrovascular accident hemorrhage you know on arrival to your unit there is a high risk of mortality and in our conversations with family, we need to make sure that they know that, but that we are doing everything we can to exhaust any intervention that might help reverse the condition. So in the initial phase, families need to be aware of the high mortality risk. And then once there's an evolution towards brain death, you have a few choices. One is educating families with frequent touch points in terms of talking to them, not using medical jargon, 
If there is reluctance or uncertainty by the family, this is something that we do now that we I would have never done before because I thought it was harsh. But now it's a little bit different. People need to know and people need to see. Having the family observe the brain death examination is very helpful to clarify things. As long as one, you prepare them for the potential for spinal cord reflexes or spinal cord mediated motor responses and explain the disconnection between the spinal cord and the brain. As long as you prepare them for that, it is very sobering and very stark, but very clear in terms of the absence of consciousness, motor response, brainstem function, and in particular, the apnea test that demonstrates, oh, it really is the machine that is doing this. My loved one's brain is not working. And if the brain's not working, they can't breathe. And that's very convincing in a stark way. And in a way that I used to think was harsh, but now my experience has been the opposite. It's been very helpful to be open about that as long as you prepare families and stop using the term life support. It's no longer life support. It's organ support or body support. The person has died, but the body parts are still working. Thank you very much for that nuance. Sam, just to dig a little deeper into this, this issue has special relevance in Canada because we've had cases that I believe went to the Supreme Court where families, for want of a better term, refused to acknowledge the existence of brain death. How do we, it sounds like this is essential worldwide to get across, both given the potential, the wonderful potential for ICU and the awful limitations to save somebody's body parts but not their brain and not their personhood. Is there any problem with this being linked to organ donation? In other words, are we always stymied with the idea of, yeah, nice, nice try doc, nice mental linguistics there, or my, nice medical gymnastics, you just want my organs? Yeah, Peter, that, that's a valid question. Uh, and I'm going to, I'm going to, you know, in 1999, as a young attending at SickKids at the time, I was getting interested in this issue of organ donation and the role of the ICU. And I had a pro-con debate in what is now called the Critical Care Canada Forum. And that was 1999. And I had a pro-con debate with Malcolm Fisher, who was the lead, one of the leading adult intensivists out of Australia. And the topic was, uh, should intensivists be responsible for organ donation? Because it was widely seen as a conflict of interest. So um, I'm a young guy, and I'm excited to do this pro-con debate, and Malcolm Fisher gets up on stage, and his, he shows one slide. Should intensivists be responsible for organ donation? And his answer was, it's not our problem. Hmm. Intriguing. And the entire audience burst out laughing. It was my first pro-con debate. I went in there limping, <laughs> trying to defend the, the, the <laughs> my stance where it is our responsibility. And the reason it's our responsibility is that we diagnose death a lot. We are responsible for end-of-life care, withdrawal of life-sustaining treatment decisions all the time. We work at the intersection of life and death all the time. And before ICU engagement in organ donation, at that time, uh, the organ donor was an orphan. The transplanters needed the organs and came around the ICU, and they were uh, perceived to be vultures lurking around. The ICU said, we're life-saving doctors. We don't take care of dead patients. In, in the middle was an, or, an organ donor. You know, Paul Murphy, who was the head of the uh, neurocritical care guy in UK, used to say, I had a terrible week on call. Ten patients died, but none of them were in my unit. The ten patients that died were transplant candidates on a waiting list. Our role is not to advocate and promote organ donation. Our role is to make sure that we have clear practices and policies 
that when death is imminent or death is established, that we offer it to families and we make sure that if families are motivated or if that patient had indicated they wanted to be a donor because their death can help save other people, our role is not just to save the patients in our unit. Our role is a societal obligation to save as many people as possible. For those of people who work in transplant centers, you're going to see end-stage organ failure patients waiting for transplant or maybe dying in your unit for transplant while they're on a ventricular assist device. We had a kid in our unit who had end-stage dilated cardiomyopathy, was in our unit for a year. It cost $1.6 million to manage this kid, not including physician and surgeon fees to manage this kid. So if we're going to offer that end-stage bridge to transplant to patients, we have an obligation to make sure that our unit and other units are identifying and referring and managing potential organ donors. But specific to your question about, but why are we involved in the death part? Because is that a conflict of interest? I think some people might perceive it to be. The history in Canada is since we, the ICU community took ownership over this, it was ICU physicians who were interested in organ donation who took this on because nobody else would do it. And the paradox is, and I'll quote Dale Gardner, who is one of my colleagues in the UK, we have advanced the role of donation-focused ICU physicians in this country. There are donation doctors in this country, including in Alberta, with a beautifully named and most appropriately named uh, term for donation doctors, and that is the SEND group, S-E-N-D, Specialist in End-of-Life Care, Neuroprognostication and Donation. And that's what these people have become. It's not just about donation. It's about specializing in end-of-life care decisions to make sure they are ethical, medically and legally grounded, and to perhaps harness the enthusiasm of our younger ICU colleagues who want to make donation happen for families as much as possible. And that unbridled enthusiasm went from conflict of interest 30 years ago to now it's a con congruence of interest to make sure that that unbridled enthusiasm and the wish to help others doesn't cross lines of medically, ethically, and legally appropriate behavior, such as separation of roles between intensive care doctors and transplant teams, separation of the people who determine death from the people who are managing organ donation, procurement, and placement, etc. The simple answer is, if not us, who? And if us, as long as we do this with the appropriate representation and balance, we had in this recent uh, Health Canada funded CBS, CMA, CCCS work that's going to be published in April, um, we had broad geographic present representation across the country, and we had broad uh, representation from all specialties, including ethics, neurocritical care, anesthesia, critical care, donation-focused doctors, patient partners. It's about balance and representation. And I would argue that contrary to a perception that it could be a conflict of interest, which I do understand, if you look at the work, it's all about protecting the integrity of the definition and determination and making sure there is no diagnostic error. If you look at the work, it is not meant to facilitate organ donation. It's meant to make sure the rigor of determining death is bulletproof and sacrosanct, even if it impacts an organ donation in a negative way. 
Wow. Thank you, Sam. That is an amazing, concise summary of not only ICU, but also brain death, how we get there and how we work towards the ultimate goal of uh, organ donation, um, if it is appropriate. Uh, This is the end of part one uh, of this podcast. And I do want to invite you to join us for the next part uh, coming your way soon. Thank you.